land is me Rock, water, animal, tree They are my song My beings here where I belong This land owns me From generations past to infinity Welcome to the Law of the Land podcast nature reparations through an Indigenous lens. My name is Sean Appo from the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation and I'd like to start by uh, acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that I'm on today, the Gadigal people, and pay my respects to elders past and present. Today we have Nick Midlam from the City of Sydney Council. Nick, do you want to give yourself a quick introduction? So thanks, Sean. Um, yeah, I'd like to also acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation uh, on whose lands the city of Sydney is located. Got absolute respect for elders past, present and emerging. Uh, sovereignty was never ceded. And um, as the site where there was first European contact, I think there's a very important role for the city of Sydney to play, as well as all the businesses that are located within it, uh, to help um, to support Aboriginal people and Aboriginal businesses to um, heal country and there's many ways to do that and um, I think that's what we're going to be talking about today. But about me, I, um, I grew up on the north coast so I better shout out also the Arakwell people, Bunjalung Nation. Um, I've got a wife, two kids, two dogs, four chickens and a veggie garden. Uh, I've worked at the city of Sydney for well just over 20 years actually, uh, always in sustainability strategy, mostly focused on carbon, reducing emissions, energy efficiency, renewable energy, that, that kind of thing. The last probably two, three years, um, again, probably what we're going to get into, trying to do a more genuine effort of how do we work better with uh, Aboriginal ways and Aboriginal people uh, to do that, to, to make a better environment. Um, one, you know, really profound thing for me was reading Fire Country by Victor Stephenson. Um, that really gave me a lot more insights into how good things were. Um, and can be again. Um, and I'll also just say like, I'm not Aboriginal and this isn't a glib thing, but I wish I was because having connection to, you know, the longest continuing civilization culture, I'm gonna call it civilization, but culture uh, on the planet is, is pretty powerful. Like my colleague, uh, David Beaumont, who works in our indigenous leadership and engagement unit, did a DNA test that shows that he's got connection back 50,000 years to the northern part of this continent. And I think you just can't get deeper than that. So everyone should own it and be as proud as you possibly can about that. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's me. Excellent. Thanks for that. Having uh, Aboriginal lineage is, is quite interesting. Um, you know, for a lot of time uh, growing up, for me anyway, like it wasn't that useful um, because it sort of landed me in a lot of trouble. Um, probably actually that wasn't really related to the Aboriginal lineage. That was more about me than anything else. But, um, yeah, I think it's been, you know, for a little while now um, we've we've had some really amazing leaders and, and, and elders that, um, that really pushed um, Indigenous excellence. Um, and uh, that, for me, has been really what sort of turned a lot of conversations around and, and people are really owning their their culture and that lineage a lot more. Um, so it's been a really interesting sort of last probably 30 years um, for me um, to um, see those changes and to like see 
some of the people growing into that and being more confident about their sort of lineage and about their about their heritage and also about the amount of knowledge that we hold to because like you say you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years of um, civilization on this continent which can be quite harsh is a real um, effort and something that we should be very very proud of Absolutely. And you've just articulated that much better than I did. Um, I absolutely acknowledge the pain and the injustice. And I hope, I really hope, I feel like we're at a pivotal point to what you're saying about seeing this as a like an amazing opportunity. Um, and the work that you're doing that we're going to talk about, you know, that's just one um, sort of incarnation of that. So I really feel like yeah, there's good times ahead. Yeah, I think, um, as you mentioned, some of the work that we're involved in is based around cultural knowledge. So Savannah Burning Methodology um, is something that those mobs up in the northern parts of the country did forever, and they did it for a range of of different cultural reasons. But um, as research grew into that cultural practice, this um, carbon avoidance methodology came out of it. So... Um, you know, what we're seeing now is that there's a lot of benefit, not just to those communities that are doing that work, which they would probably like to be engaged in anyway, but there's also benefit to organisations like your own when it comes to carbon offsets. Um, and, you know, we would like to be able to spread that opportunity to other mobs around the country as well with the different methodologies that are relevant in those areas, uh, including blue carbon and human-induced regeneration. Um so, yeah, I think what we're doing in this space is really letting um, different mobs to, to be able to own their lands and be able to care for those lands in the way that they had done for thousands and thousands of years. I might, just for the, the listeners who maybe aren't across those methods, I might just do my interpretation of those, those methods just really quickly because I found when I talk to people about buying carbon credits that are from burning country they're like what you're creating smoke and you're saving carbon what a load of rubbish and it's not it's absolutely not basically if you don't care for country you do nothing uh hot summer fires come through and do a scorched earth and nothing will grow back and you lose all the carbon out of the vegetation and the animals and the soil and it takes a long long time for it to restore and it's probably not going to restore in balance as opposed to the way the practice the cultural fire practice has been done for millennia across most of the country where there's much smaller control burns in the lower, uh, like it doesn't go up into the into the trees. It's just in the lower level. Um, it's in the cooler parts of the of the seasons, cooler seasons. So it's not as hot, um, not as widespread, and it's 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 recognizing the right types of vegetation to do at the right time. So you end up with what you know they call a mosaic, where if you looked at it from the sky, it looks like an Aboriginal painting. You just see like these sort of dots on the landscape, which basically means that the biodiversity is much healthier, like the right species are growing, it's attracting the right animals, there's a lot more carbon being drawn out of the sky and being locked away into the healthy soil. But also, because it's been maintained that way, if a big fire does come through in summer, it'll hit one of those patches and pretty much peter out so you don't get those uncontrolled fires. And there's a lot of rigour behind that method. There's a lot of, you know, been a lot of media about international and local integrity of offsets and are they genuine or are they not? That method took about 10 years and $10 million, Rowan, your CEO told me. CSIRO were involved. I've spoken to the people involved. It is legit. It's never been subject to scrutiny like some of the other methods. So it's um, 
it's yeah, it's quite legitimate in terms of how they've conservative, conservatively estimated how much carbon that saves, and that's what you buy when you buy those carbon credits. Um, blue carbon is like just restoring um, like mangroves and seagrasses and stuff like that, which um, might not be intuitive, but that actually locks away heaps more carbon than say rainforests, for example. Um, and then HIR, the human-induced regeneration, um, there is some integrity issues around that, but they're being resolved, and you would never do it. You'd never go down that path unless you were sure that it was legit. I know that, Sean. But the gist of that, my naive understanding is that you basically just like take some degraded, de degraded land, probably fence it, maybe do a little bit of replanting, get rid of the weeds, get rid of the feral animals, get the cows off it that keep eating all the native vegetation that's coming back and just make sure that it survives and returns back to the way it was. So yeah, that's my take on it. Yeah, so those are three of 38 methodologies at the moment, and they're not all based around, like some of them are uh, like renewable energy um, methodologies and stuff like that, but it, it is quite a complex system. Um, the Savannah burning is probably the most simple, and even from a verifications point of view. So it uses satellite technology to be able to um, monitor what areas of a particular project landscape was burnt during the, the uh, burning season. So it's a bit blunt in that way. Is So the um, burning season is like a few months in the middle of the year, usually during the cooler months, like you said. And then if there are fires that, uh, that happen in that project area after that point, so usually like August, September through to May the next year, then those kind of come off the work that you have done during that during that cool year. So usually during those during those cooler months, like the rangers and the people who are implementing those projects, they're out on country, burning as much as they can, so that they can you know get all of that credit into the bank if you want to think of it that way. And then if any other hot um, uh, fires during the hotter months, that sort of comes off that that credit that they've that they've built up and. And then, like every year, they get um, reports done. So you can download reports from government websites and it'll tell you, it'll, it'll show you a map of what you did during the cool months and then what happened during some of the warmer months. And it's, it is a really transparent way of seeing what was done um, during those projects for that 12-month period. So it's a really, like you say, it's a, it's a pretty high-integrity um, way of... Um, conducting those projects so we might be not following your uh your planned agenda sorry but it's probably i just right. wanted to mention you know your core benefits framework um which isn't just about you know creating a carbon project and selling it to organizations like us so that we can tick our you know emissions goals um what i think the value that you guys bring is those additional benefits like um, sharing knowledge uh, from elders, for example, and training up, um, you know, local people on the ground and supporting local jobs on country and trying to keep people on country. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I know like your carbon credits come at a bit of a premium. And part of the reason for that is because to, to care for country, it's predominantly doing those those burns during the cooler seasons, but you want to keep people in country. You want to keep that knowledge and that skills and that connection. And so you pay a bit of a premium. So it's not just sort of saying, oh, great, you did that job that week. See you later. Good luck with the rest of the year. You're trying to sort of help those local communities uh, to stay in, in their areas. Is that right? Yeah, it's a number of things. So those 
core benefits are really about, like Rowan said um, a couple of weeks ago in our, in, our, in our last podcast, that's the main reason why we get involved in these projects is, is for those core benefits. So the projects themselves are a sort of vehicle for achieving those core benefits. So social, cultural and environmental core benefits. And if we can implement projects in that way, then the sort of carbon credits come later. And then, you know, the carbon credits become that sustainability mechanism to keep those core benefits from happening. What we're seeing some of those core benefits are, are traditional owners getting back on country for the first time in 20 or 50 years. Um, You know, we have projects up in Cape York where the traditional owners, while they have native title over a piece of land, um, that land has a pastoral lease on it. And depending on what the leaseholder um, feels at any particular point in time, they might not want traditional owners to be back on that country. And we've had, we have projects where that has happened for long periods of time. So now we're seeing um, people getting back onto country and reconnecting with their culture, reconnecting in some instances where people were born and where they lived the early parts of their life. So they have really deep connections with that country. So a lot of um, social and cultural benefits come out of that kind of work. And then the environmental benefits that come out of that as well as, like you say, getting back on the country and doing that work according to cultural frameworks has a whole range of environmental benefits. So mm. I think another thing that Rowan's been saying a lot lately is, and I haven't got this piece of research, but he's spoken about it a lot. In the time that Savannah Burning has been operating through Cape York, the um, bushfire incidence has reduced by 50%, you know, which is, which is huge. That's massive. And, you know, that has massive implications for biodiversity. Um, so, you know, plant species are not getting burnt to a crisp and taking years to come back. Animals are not getting burnt. You know, one of the things I like to talk about a lot is in the 2019-2025s, 3 billion animals perished. And, you know, we just can't have that situation occurring so regularly. Um, and the work that these traditional owners are doing back on country is helping to stop that from happening so regularly. Totally. Um, I mean, yeah, the whole caring for country is just so right in so many ways in terms of um, caring for the people and the land and the water. And here's a couple of ways that we can do that. One is the carbon story, which you said, which is only a piece of it, but it's still an important one. And we'll get more into the details of, you know, how we're doing that and where it can, where it can go. But that's a real, like, there's a real commodity there that, you know, um, corporates and governments can actually um, send the capital that's needed to do those projects just for the carbon piece alone. But I think increasingly there's going to be, there's going to have to be mechanisms for biodiversity as well, like genuine, you know, restoration and, um, and, and funding for meeting the global targets, which is to conserve, you know, 30% of the world's wild places. Um, given Indigenous people own and manage so much of that, um, they can't just be taken for granted or for free, like both in terms of money, but also the cultural um, intellectual property obviously needs to be um, paid for. Um, but then there's the other side of it, like the bushfire risk, like you said, like Rowan has said on a few occasions, it's like with climate change, we know that it's getting hotter and there's things that we can do but it's not that easy Uh, we know that there's like more extreme weather events and it's like you know um the floods and things there's some things you can do but bushfire is absolutely something we can like just like 
you know, massively uh, reduce the risk of um, by um, somehow coming up with a system to support cultural fire on country the way it was done for 65,000 years and it's only been the last couple hundred years and, you know, you read fire country and you realise it's just stupid things like um, when the Europeans came, they put up wooden fences and they didn't want them to burn. So it's like, you know, you can't burn anymore. It's just stuff like that. And it's, um, yeah, so anyway, I, I feel like there's going to be new markets and I know you guys are working um, towards the the platform for that with your catalyst markets so that organisations, corporates, individuals even um, can actually uh, provide the, the money that it takes to to do cultural burns uh, for local um, communities to do burns on their land, uh, local practitioners. And so just to give you a personal example, you know, like I bought a couple fire credits for my mum for Christmas last year. It's like anyone can do that. And it's like, what better present can you give someone? Um, you don't have to be living in the country. You, you can be in the city and um, you can be a big corporate and still support um, healing of country and people in Australia. It doesn't have to be right in your back doorstep but having said that the city of sydney there's also a massive opportunity for upskilling you know those emerging leaders that i was talking about that have that knowledge that you're talking about or you know improving like giving them back the knowledge and the and the, the agency um to be part of this um opportunity because it's a big one you know we'll get on to a little bit about the city of sydney leadership um, in this space um, or in the sort of carbon offsetting space and some of the other work that you're involved in. But, you know, I, I feel like there is um, a real role for local governments in all of this as well. So that's some of the conversations and modelling we've been doing in different places around the country, particularly those that have been frequently bushfire affected in the last few years, is looking at, you know, what is a sustainable funding mechanism for um, people who live in that area who will ultimately be protected by cultural fire programs and bushfire mitigation in this way? Um, you know, insurance companies, like the they have premiums and, you know, the premiums have gone up since there's been so many of these um, natural disasters occurring and people, you know, need payouts from, from their insurance policies. But that doesn't seem to be like insurance companies are not contributing a lot in this space at this particular point in time. So it falls back to individuals to be able to, you know, invest in that kind of work, which, like you said, you bought some for your mum. She lives down on the south coast. So, you know, we're starting to we're at the point now where we're going to begin talking with local government and saying, look, here's a potential um here's a potential um protection me mechanism for people who and not just people, but other infrastructure in these areas. Um, let's start bringing together all of the different stakeholders and having a conversation about how we can make this happen and how we can make it in a make it um, sustainable. Absolutely, I think um, like uh, it's it's almost like you know your dentist used to just go to the dentist, they'd give you a filling, and then the penny dropped. It's like, hang on, if we just like clean your teeth every time you come, you might not need to have like to repair the damage and it's 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 kind of similar um and i think you know the penny will drop for the insurance industry that um especially in areas where you can't get insurance or it's just unaffordable it's probably more beneficial to pay a local community to manage that land with cultural fire um and in the best interests of everyone and there'll be a way to monetize it as well like it might come off your premium or something um, and there's also the opportunity for, I know, I know it's not as wide scale, you know, uptake is as likely, but 
private landowners, you know, with properties that back onto a national park or whatever they, um, you know, they might prefer to pay local mob to keep their land uh, in, in balance than face the risk of an uncontrolled fire as well. So anyway, that's that's the fire stuff. That's your thing. We're not quite there yet. I'm still trying to get my head around the ways that the city of Sydney can help to support um, uh, that that practice because, you know, city of Sydney is obviously highly urbanised and there might be a few little parks or whatever, but it's sort of, we're talking about, you know, getting this back across pretty much the whole country uh, where where it used to be, you know, not, not some of the rainforest areas or whatever, but all the vegetation communities that used to have fire, um, bringing that back. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about the city of Sydney's membership with the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance, and then we'll get on to uh, how, we, how we came to meet. Yeah, no worries. So the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance, I think it's about 20 cities from around the world, um, US, Europe, Japan, a few Australian cities. And it was set up, oh, it's probably, you know, almost 10 years ago now. It was initially funded mostly through US philanthropy. And they, in America, they had this um, kind of series of meetings with the sustainability directors of cities over there and so someone had the idea well let's let's make that international uh why why keep it um just to the us and so that's how the carbon neutral cities alliance was born and at the time they literally just reached out to all of the cities that back then had a net zero um goal for their local government areas and back then we were one of a handful so we I, i count ourselves as lucky actually um to a have this relationship with you guys first of all um, but be um, to have been selected to be part of the carbon neutral cities alliance back then because now pretty much most major cities will have a target of some sort so it wouldn't have been a given that we'd be part of it um, but what they do is they it's 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 kind of like it's a very honest forum for sharing experiences between cities in terms of reducing carbon and increasing resilience and it's not like a chest beating kind of thing it's it's just like warts and all here's what's working here's what's not uh to help to um share lessons learned and inspire and encourage and just sort of mainstream um cities taking action on, on climate i suppose uh and one one key kind of aspect to that is they do have these revolving kind of grant rounds um which are targeted at what they call game changing initiatives things that can really sort of you know change the course in a significant way and i guess we're going on a couple years ago now um the game changer for that period the grant um was specifically looking for projects that um used indigenous knowledge practices wisdom and we been in contact with you guys for a couple of years at that stage because we'd been buying the buyer credits for our own carbon neutral program so we sort of had that relationship and we talked a little bit before about the method for creating carbon credits from um from fire and how it took 10 years and 10 million dollars back then naive me thought why don't we have a method for fire that quantifies the carbon for like new south wales because then we can support communities closer to home when we're buying our carbon credits and so i found out about this fund that was available through the carbon neutral cities alliance and i called rowan your ceo and i was like hey here's a bit of money like 
can we uh, use that to do a method for fire, for carbon, for New South Wales? And he literally laughed at me, which was great. Uh, he's like, dude, that took <laughs> you know, a lot of people. $10 million. <laughs> However, there are a whole bunch of other methods, which you mentioned before, Sean, that could be used. Oh, and by the way, there's heaps and heaps of Aboriginal land in New South Wales. And I'm very mindful when I say Aboriginal land, it's all Aboriginal land. But let's say, I don't know the appropriate way to phrase it, let's say Aboriginal owned or managed land, like land council land, that sort of thing. In New South Wales, there's heaps of it, heaps and heaps. And not one of those, was it 38 methods you said um, for carbon, have been applied to those lands as of yet. Um, because of your classic chicken and egg supply and demand, you know, it takes time and investment, money, effort. Um, and uncertainty to create carbon projects on country and then you have to wait and then hopefully someone will buy them at the end and you might make some money out of it so he said let's let's use that money um, to do a project where we'll do a demonstration so we'll find a good good area do a de bit of a demonstration project so that you know it, demystifies a heck of a lot when you can actually see something like as opposed to having a concept um, using any one of those methods. Um, in parallel with that, we'll talk to the big end of town, the corporates that are all got their own, you know, environmental net zero goals. They've got reconciliation action plans. We'll talk to them and we'll get them to pledge in one way or another. It might be a letter, it might be a contract. Some, somewhere or another, we'll get them to say, hey, if you do this project, we'll buy the carbon credit. So it reduces that, that risk, let's say. And then the other as aspect to that is about the knowledge sharing because like I said, there's so much land. If you follow the model with the core benefits that you guys have been, you know, um, applying up in the top end with your fire credits, the cultural, social, economic, environmental benefits, in addition to the carbon savings, are just enormous. Um, it's it's a real like massive opportunity to. Yeah, meet meet Australia's and corporate emissions targets, but at the same time um restore land and, and country and people so um i see it as a massive massive opportunity so anyway i um after that conversation with rowan i sort of wrote it up because we're the member city you know but the great thing about the carbon neutral cities alliance is that the money doesn't have to funnel through the city so literally working with rowan and um and others we created the application sent it off and then it was successful which was great but it went straight to you guys. It just went straight to the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation. The city of Sydney has literally no role other than just sort of, you know, checking that you're doing what you said you do um, because we're the member city. And also we've got a lot of um, great relationships with a lot of corporates like the Better Buildings Partnership, which is all of the, the big uh, A-grade office buildings in town um, are all committed to net zero and helping the city to achieve its targets. And there's other programs like that. So literally our only you know involvement um is to help facilitate those conversations uh and to promote your program and um and yeah i think that's a great model because it just sort of means that it's it's sort of you know you're not having to go through our our process um it's sort of a bit more self-determined and so what i love is like in the application we said oh you know we'll do workshops we'll do this and that and spend money here and there and the first thing that Rowan did when the check landed was to engage you, Sean, which I think is fantastic because what better way to implement a project like this than, 
you know, to have a great Aboriginal man like you to, to run it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that grant part of the project is now, you know, coming to an end, as you know, um, and it hasn't, you know, the, the demonstration project hasn't happened quite yet, but the positive side is you've had so many great conversations, you've met so many people that it's probably going to have at least more, definitely more than one demonstration, I imagine, is going to happen in, in different parts of the country, you know, different parts of the state. And um, you've also managed to secure third party funding to keep the pro program going. So it shows that there's, there's obviously a lot of potential. We probably underestimated when we did the application what's involved to do something like this. So it's no criticism whatsoever. It's just sort of, you know, learned a lot of lessons on the way. And I, I guess, you know, feel free, you know, to correct me again, but I guess the main sort of barrier for the, the way that we envisaged this would roll out, we thought, oh yeah, we'll have like a strong signal from the corporate saying, yep, we want your carbon credits. We'd have the land councils or whoever the land managers were saying, great, we've got a strong signal. Let's spend some money and do these great projects like we spoke about before. But they don't have the money or the reason. Like it takes serious capital to build fences and maintain and make sure that if a fire goes through, you're replanting, all that sort of stuff. So it actually needs a bit of upfront investment. So I think that's where the program's going to go. Like that um, there's, you know, a lot of questions that we sort of mentioned earlier about the integrity of carbon credits. There's also a lot of work being done about the integrity of corporations that are making net zero commitments like the UN have recently released an integrity matters report on net zero claims. And um, I think long story short with carbon credits, we definitely don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater in the sense that Yes, there's some dodgy credits out there, but they're probably a very small minority and they can probably be improved or removed. There's a lot of incredibly high quality, high integrity, amazing offsets with core benefits um, or the other way around. Like you say, it's like core benefits with carbon savings um, that are out there. And the projects that you guys do are a shining example of that. And so increasingly, I think there's going to be a whole bunch of different offset products out there, you know, depending on who the organizations are and what they what they want. But the bees knees offsets are going to be the ones that are long term, um, that are nature based, like they're restoring nature, um, that they're carbon removal because there's too much carbon in the atmosphere. So we need these amazing machines called trees and plants to suck the carbon back out of the atmosphere. and then the core benefits, you know, and so that's the only product that they're going to want to buy and they're going to be in limited supply. So we've got all this land, we've got the methods, they're robust. We've got all these big corporates with all their reconciliation action plans and their high integrity carbon net zero goals. It's, it's just a question of when and if and how much and, and how soon this can happen. It's, it's like, um, it's the next commodity boom, to be honest, for Australia. Like we talk about how fast the grid's getting green and how we can export renewables or green steel and um, transition away from just being, you know, a fossil fuel exporter. There'll be a point, I don't know how far away it is, 10 years, 20, maybe soon, I don't know, that these high integrity carbon credits by Indigenous people on their country are going to just be, you know, the most highly sought after commodity in the carbon game, I think, by countries and organisations. So anyway, that was enabled by the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. So 
yeah, big thanks to them for seeing this opportunity and realizing it because it wasn't a huge amount of funding, to be honest. I'm not going to give away your salary, um, Sean, but without it, it, this project wouldn't have happened. Like it's it's one of those things everyone would have thought about, oh, that's a great idea, but it's it's just that little bit of, you know, seed funding that can turn something into reality. So we're not there yet, but I see a huge potential. And again, that's just the carbon piece. That's just monetizing the carbon piece to do this. So if we can monetize the biodiversity and the fire risk as well, happy days. And that's, you know, and that's when the cities can see, oh yeah, there's an opportunity for us to meet our own goals while getting these great outcomes close to home. I think what you said there is is totally true. So I think that, you know, there have been a number of questions and the government has gone through a process to um, increase the integrity of the carbon industry. But I think what people are realising is that, um, you know, they've probably, there have been people who've been burnt. So they've spent a lot of money offsetting their carbon footprints and there are now questions over the validity of what they've bought. So now people will go, well, okay, then I'm not going to play with that risk anymore because there's reputational risk and there's compliance risk for them um, in doing so. Um, so now they're just going to go, okay, I'm just going to try and invest in the highest integrity um, products that we can find or or have a sort of role in, in developing. And those are some of the conversations that I've been having for the last 12 to sort of 15 months is, you know, we have... Um, these projects, uh, we have these um, potential projects, they are degraded land. I've been out there and seen them myself. Um, so they're, you know, the, the local traditional owners want to play a role in um, rejuvenating that land and getting it back to what it should be according to the cultural protocol. So, you know, they have the understanding around what the biodiversity of those um, ecosystems should look like. Um, and that's what they want to get back. Um, that's what they want to be able to put back together. But um, I think there's a number of other factors that are going on in the local market. So, you know, we've had a change of federal government. So, you know, there are different attitudes towards climate change and the whole market shift into offsetting and trying to get away from business as usual from the corporate side and, you know, renewable energy. And, you know, there's a whole suite of, um, legislation and regulations that now seem to be shifting a little bit more towards doing more. So I, I think we're in this transition period at the moment where um, corporations, so um, demand side is definitely changing. They do want to invest in higher integrity carbon offsets with all the other benefits that come with that and mainly because a lot of them also have reconciliation action plans. So, you know, for them, they want to be able to satisfy a number of different KPIs within their organisation and not have to do too much work around that, unfortunately. Um, but that's the kind of sweet spot where we sit. Like we can help organisations to satisfy their ESG targets and we can also help them to satisfy their reconciliation action plan KPIs as well. So, yeah, I think there's a, we're in a bit of a transition period um, where um, corporations will get a better understanding of, well, if you actually want to get in at the ground floor with these high integrity car, um, carbon offsets, you actually need to start investing and doing more upfront. And those might look like 
you know, pre-purchase agreements or traditional investments or whatever it might look like. But um, I think we're we're coming into that period. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think the integrity issue might take, you know, a year or two to kind of bed down. So there will be a little bit of uncertainty. I came across a new term called green hushing, which is where people actually buy their offsets, but they're not promoting them because they can concerned that someone's going to find their low integrity and call them out on it they're still doing it um but yeah it's an absolute shift especially for like you know the big the big end of town let's say the big companies that have these big goals and a lot of scrutiny um they're obviously going to be looking for these kind of projects and you know especially in the early days they're not going to be in big supply like i'm really grateful that we've got this relationship with you guys for example because I know that the demand for the fire credits in the top end is increasing. And so we've sort of got a foot in the door, luckily, so that we can, you know, increase the number of credits that we're getting through that mechanism, which, um, you know, the more that demand increases, can can the supply um, keep up, you know? Um, so there's going to be a little bit of, um, yeah, jostling, I think, um, for the demand for the high integrity credits as they come. But it's not just about... Um, that risk mitigation and aligning with their net zero goals and their reconcili- reconciliation action plans. It's also, there's an opportunity here for fixing in the price because nobody really knows where the price of offsets is going to go. It's been low for years and it's spiked massively and it's sort of back down. And then when all these international article six and things like that about how countries account for their offsets and whatever gets better down, um, and we've still got, you know, fossil fuel companies expanding and locally we've got the safeguard mechanism saying, yeah, we keep building new coal and gas. As long as you offset it, you know, the demand's going to go up and that pushes up the price. Um, like Indonesia, I think, isn't going to be exporting any offsets because they appreciate that they need them for their country, for example. So there might be a situation in Australia, you know, we've got the net zero, oh, sorry, the 43% target. Um, as we get you know, a couple of years out from that and we're not there yet, the governments might say, right, here's, here's a bunch of money, build some stuff quick, but they better do it soon because it takes, you know, four or five years for you guys to find the land and get the right communities and build the projects and ensure all the integrity and all the rest of it. So honestly, it's sort of like, I think, yeah, we are in this transition because we've still got this sort of little window of integrity uncertainty, although I think that's rapidly closing. Um, but we need that investment now to get these projects built. Yeah, as as Rowan said recently, like there are indigenous interests over fifty four percent of the country's land mass, hmm. which is huge. You know, where we should be a real major player in a lot of these conversations about biodiversity and carbon offsetting and human induced re, um, regeneration. A whole range of things. So what we've been engaged in recently is doing some modelling into, well, okay, what does that look like? If, we're, if we are to implement projects on that amount of land mass, how much is it going to cost? Um, what, does, what kind of activities are involved in doing that? Um, what does that mean for local communities? What does that mean for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, jobs? Um, what does that mean for an organisation like us? Like if we are going to grow with that opportunity to make sure that we are assisting those projects and those communities to implement the core benefits and capture all of those stories that are going along with these these projects, 
you know, what does that look like for us? How big do we need to be to be able to make sure that we can um, work with that number of projects? And, you, you know, it's it's been a really interesting process to go through that kind of modelling and that kind of thinking. And it's a bit mind-boggling when you get into the sort of nuts and bolts of what the dollars and cent amounts are going to be to make that happen. But um, it's something that we as a as a whole country have to start getting our heads around. Like, you know, we can see now that with climate change, like we're seeing how much the impacts of climate change is actually costing. Hmm. And when you compare what the opportunity for implementing projects, when you compare those costs with what the impacts are costing, it's it sort of pales um, in comparison. So, you know, we need to start having the conversation around, okay, this is what we're already seeing is damaging our communities. This is what it might cost to actually protect some of our communities. Why aren't we talking about, you know, getting in front of these kinds of impacts and making sure that we aren't seeing the sort of full impact that's coming down the line. Yeah, I mean, especially because I don't know that you're putting a money figure on all of those core benefits, are you? Like the cultural, the social, the biodiversity benefits, you're not. So if you've factored those in, it's like, you know, it's it's a very clear business case. Um, I don't know if this is, you know, my my place to speak about it, but... It really feels like what you're saying about there's this massive opportunity, 50, 54% of the land has Aboriginal interest. If the voice gets up, and I'm all for voice, truty, truth, that's my personal thing. I don't, I'm not really wedded to which order it happens. I think they're all important and just make them happen when they can. But if there was a voice that was advising directly to Parliament on issues that pertain to Aboriginal people, given the social and the cultural as well as the environmental aspects of this, I think this would be an obvious topic that you'd you'd have as a as an agenda item. You know, um, could be a way to escalate it and get that funding that you're talking about. Yeah, I think what I tried to do at the end of last year was look at um, you know with the with the core benefits um, and and focusing on core benefits for those communities and and sort of projects where where we're working with those communities. You know, that kind of social impact is something that governments are already paying um, to in like grants and project funding to try and achieve those kinds of outcomes. Whereas what we're finding is that through these carbon projects and these biodiversity projects, we're actually seeing those those social impacts um, being generated. So, you know, I started looking at, well, is there a sort of social impact bond mechanism that we can have a look at to um, fund some of these projects to get up and running? And social impact bonds is something that we don't use very widely here, but in other countries, they do use them quite widely. Um, but, you know, there's got to be, uh, for me, it seems like there could be a real holistic way to to um, fund Aboriginal um, carbon and biodiversity projects but you know as a sort of society we haven't quite reached that point where we can have those conversations and potentially that's somewhere that the Uluru statement and having that voice to parliament could be able to um, to give it give advice about funding mechanisms and the way that projects are funded and how usually siloed a lot of projects are like projects funding and grant funding usually only comes out in health, 
or housing or it might be something around creating jobs or there might be something around you know creating business they're all really really siloed where what we're talking about uh, could be potentially is to have a whole bucket of money that goes around a community to implement projects that can that can produce outcomes for all of those things yeah i mean it's just there's definitely multiple outcomes and the one thing that i would say is that the work you've been doing to date with the fire credits in the top end and the the work towards getting a demonstration on land in new south wales um, is only going to help to prosecute that case when and if the time comes you'll have you know real real life examples real world examples to point to the city of city council has shown leadership in this space over a long period of time and now how are you influencing other councils but also the corporations that you work with through mechanisms like the better buildings partnership yeah so the city council has adopted a target for the local area to be net zero emissions by 2035 um, and we know that you know the grid is getting green a lot faster um, people will be switching away from gas to electricity uh, there'll be more public transport, walking, cycling. City will be greener, you know, reducing the heat, reducing the energy load. Um, at the end of the day, though, there's going to be a role for high integrity carbon credits. We haven't, you know, put any prescribed criteria around that yet. And we've been talking about integrity and that's a bit of an evolving piece. But I imagine that in coming years, there'll be a bit more guidance around what is our strategy to reach that goal. As a city, I mean... We couldn't really afford to just do that ourselves. So there's going to have to be a collaboration with all of these, you know, businesses um, in our area. Um, so that conversation will obviously evolve. But what I can say is that the Better Buildings Partnership, which you mentioned, it's a collaboration of um, like all of the big kind of property companies that own or manage most of the premium grade buildings in the city centre. So. They're all signed up to net zero. They're all collaborating. Um, and one of the conversations that they are definitely focusing on, in addition to those other things about electrification and whatnot, is integrity of carbon credits. So there is absolutely a real opportunity um, for them to be talking with you, which we can facilitate. Um, but any corporates that are listening to this, I would absolutely encourage you to give the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation a call and just see where what opportunities there might be that fit with the needs of your business and your organisation because, um, yeah, you guys really are enablers in this space. I think it's a really important role that you're playing to be um, this conduit of, of ways of being, you know, um, but achieving mutual outcomes. So um, I guess, yeah, that's my, my main sort of call to action is to pick up the phone and give the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation a call. Um, like what, how does, how does the partnership between the City of Sydney and the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation um, work for the City of Sydney? So the City of Sydney has been carbon neutral certified through the Australian Government Program since 2011. And that involves, you know, there's guidelines, you measure your emissions, you reduce them where you can, you go renewable if you can, you buy offsets, you package it all up. 
send it off to the government and you get your accreditation. In the early years, we were just buying, honestly, the cheapest international offsets that we could because we wanted to spend our money on things like putting solar panels on our buildings or upgrading our streetlights to LED or turning our fleet from petrol to electric. So we thought that was a more immediate kind of thing, which is now the way that all this guidance is going. It's like, yeah, do that stuff and then get your offsets. So the offsets piece wasn't a big part of our narrative. We didn't use it at all. And then a few years ago, it was actually someone from our procurement unit sort of tapped me on the shoulder. He's like, Nick, I know you're buying these offsets for our carbon neutral program. Um, he grew up in the Northern Territory and you'd always see the smoke um, from the cultural fire. He's like, have you, uh, you know, thought about that? Because we've also got this thing called a stretch reconciliation action plan, which uh, kind of means that we need to look for opportunities of ways that we can support Aboriginal people and enterprise. And, and I hadn't, I'd, I wasn't aware of it. Um, and so the first thing we did is we went to Supply Nation and we asked them, hey, do you have any Aboriginal businesses that do carbon stuff? And through that, we actually got put in touch with Biosticks Alliance and called them up, had a great chat. And they're like, yeah, you really got to talk to the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation. They're, they're, <laughs> they're the main player like that you need to talk to. And we did. And that's how I met Rowan. And um, so then, you know, we did our usual procurement process of, um, uh, you know, um, saying, hey, this is how many offsets we want this year. And pretty much, like I said, your, your offsets are at a premium price, which is totally substantiated because you've got all those amazing benefits uh, of skills and training and um, culture and um, employment and the biodiversity and everything. So I'm not, yeah, it's not a, not a criticism, but um, we had only ever been budgeting for the cheap international stuff. So we didn't really have a lot of money. And then the next year we're like, hey, these these are good. Let's, let's put a bit more money towards it. We still went, you know, local government, got to go to open market, whatever, but your response uh, was evaluated to be the best by the panel. Uh, and I think we got up to 5%. And then um, I think it's sort of, indicative of the traction that it's getting both in you know wanting to support these projects but also actually putting some some action towards our reconciliation action plan that there seems to be general support to invest more in in these credits so last year i think we got up to like 21 percent and in our environmental action strategy we've got a target actually it's it doesn't um say that we need to have like the core benefits or anything, but it, it basically says by 2025, we, the city as an organization will buy 100% um, high integrity nature-based carbon credits. So I don't want to cross any lines with procurement or anything like that, but um, we need to navigate how best we can work forward because it's so important and it comes through again and again, like, when organizations and governments are dealing with Aboriginal businesses and communities, it's got to be genuine and long-term. And so that's all I can really say is that that's what we're striving to do. Yeah. And I think from, from our perspective, the relationship has played out um, in certainty for the community partners that we have who are implementing these, these projects. So they know that we have, um, buyers for the work that they do um, each year so they're they're happy in that way um, 
you know, you helped us out with your networks, things like the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance and getting us funding for some of the work that we do. Um, you introduce us to other people in your networks, like what I've spoken to, the, the Better Buildings Partnership and uh, a range of other people who you've um, introduced us to. Um, and then there's things like the City Talks last year. So mm. having Rowan participate in a, a panel of that nature um, lets us speak to people who we normally don't get access to. So from our point of view, you know, it's, it is a true partnership. Like we, we, we bring things to the, to the table that the other people can't bring and we work in collaboration. So, you know, I think it's a really interesting model in working in that way. I agree. And sorry to cut you off, um, but you can't, you can't get that outcome by just sort of saying, hey, do this you know, send out a quote and engage, you know, it's, it's got to be a bit more, um, yeah, honest and obviously you've got to work within those frameworks, but um, be mindful of what those opportunities are. And the city talk one is, is fantastic. Like if we hadn't, if we didn't have this good, you know, ongoing relationship with you guys through those carbon credits and the CN, the carbon neutral cities Alliance um, uh, project to grow the, carbon market in New South Wales uh, on Aboriginal land, it's, a, it's very unlikely that we would have gone to get Rowan on that panel. And he was sitting right next to, you know, the environment minister and climate change minister, Chris Bowen, um, which was just great. And it's, you know, in a town, Sydney town hall packed event, I don't know how many people uh, streamed as well, um, to have that opportunity for Rowan to point out the obvious that there's all these big corporates in Australia that have net zero goals that are just buying international offsets like we used to do. Um, and hey, why don't we use this opportunity uh, to achieve everyone's ambitions in terms of high integrity and supporting local community. So that was really good. And then I found out that Rowan also went over to the climate conference over in Egypt and um, managed to sort of meet up with uh, Chris Bowen over there because they sort of knew each other through the city conversation. So I guess that's the other sort of, you know, thing is just don't, don't be timid. If you're an organization or just even a small person like me in an organization, don't be fearful about, you know, trying to do something that inherently you know is right, even though you might not have the evidence for it. You just know um, and go with it and, and see where, it, where it'll go and flower. And um yeah, there's all sorts of unexpected opportunities. So I'm really looking forward, I guess, like I've, I've loved the journey so far with you guys, but I'm especially looking forward to see where it goes next. Um, it's only it's only going to get better and bigger, I'm assuming. Yeah, well, I think the other interesting thing about the relationship between our two organisations is that you guys are interested in doing a bit more deeper dive down the sort of supply chain. Like you're, 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 you want more information about the projects where your carbon credits are coming from. And I feel like in a lot of the conversations I've had with um, corporates, they're not so curious. Like people are just, oh, we have to buy this product to satisfy this need. Let's just do that. It's just a, it's just a sort of cold transaction. And that's, that's something that we talk with a lot of our potential um, partners around as, as well is, you know, this is a real opportunity for you to learn more about, um, Aboriginal culture and Aboriginal people and and an Aboriginal place in this in this in this country. It's it shouldn't just be about you know this 
transaction. And I know Rowan's um, very keen to make sure that our partners have a good understanding of that because he has people asking him daily to buy carbon credits and he only sells to people who he believes we can set up this um, more evolved partnership with. So, um, yeah, I, would, I, I think you're right. I think, um, you know, we need to ask our, our um, corporates and, and other people who need to offset their, their, their carbon footprint to be a bit more curious and to be a bit more brave and to engage a bit more fully with um, the projects where their carbon credits are coming from to have a better understanding of why they're paying this, this higher price for higher integrity carbon offsets. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you just got to keep doing what you're doing, keep doing it, keep talking about it. This podcast is a good, you know, example of that. Um, I think a lot of people just aren't necessarily across the issues. It's It's been a learning curve for me. Um, you know, I used to think that cultural fire was just like, you know, backburning kind of thing. It's like, oh... Um, so yeah, it's, it's just being mindful of where people are at, but, um, absolutely calling out anything that's, you know, um, could be improved, let's say, and, um, yeah, and working to, to build on each other's strengths. Well, that sounds like a perfect place to end. Uh, thanks very much, Nick, for talking with us today. And, uh, I know that we'll have a lot more conversations between ourselves in the, in the future. Well, thanks is actually all to you, Sean. I love the work that you and the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation are doing. And for me, I actually feel honoured that you actually wanted to talk with me on this podcast. So thank you. They won't no take it away from me. This land is mine. This land is me. land owns me this land is mine this land is me they will take it away they won't take it away they won't take it away from me Thanks for joining us for another episode of Law of the Land, Nature Reparations Through an Indigenous Lens. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal and the Rakwal people. This podcast was produced by Eli Corliss.